You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 51 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. In this episode, Peter Adams of Augmenta in Sydney will talk about Division 7A payments. But before you listen on, please make sure that you first listen to episode 50 about Division 7A loans. It will put this episode into a much better context. So here's Peter about Division 7A payments. Division 7A extends its scope beyond what we discussed in our last segment as Division 7A and loans. It also extends itself where there's an actual payment out of the private company to the shareholder or an associate of the shareholder. And it seeks to treat that payment as it does loans, as an unfranked deemed dividend. Now, once again, our first question would be, what is a payment under Division 7A? And payment is actually defined in Division 7A under Section 109C. And it is also a very, very broad ambit that's afforded to this concept payment in the context of Division 7A. It says a payment would qualify as a Division 7A payment to the extent that it is to an entity, on behalf of the entity, or for the benefit of an entity. And it would also include the crediting of an amount to the extent that it is to an entity, on behalf of an entity, or for the benefit of an entity. And it would also include a transfer of property to the entity. So payment The connotation might be that we're talking here about cash payment, but not necessarily. So it would also cover when I sell a property under its market value. Sell it, perhaps, or transfer it. So the word they use is transfer. So transfer would be where I transfer it to a shareholder, but at the value below what would be representative of its market value. So the difference would potentially be a dividend. Unfranked deemed dividend, absolutely, yeah. So any transfer of property would qualify as a payment under Division 7A. So it's not just cash payments that would be captured in that sense. If we're thinking cash payments, if I make a cash payment to a shareholder out of profits, that'll be a normal dividend anyway. So really a cash payment to a shareholder is a normal dividend. And therefore, it will be a frankable dividend. And then we have the exclusion that says if it's assessable income anyway, it can't be an unfranked deemed dividend under Division 7A. So really where cash payments come in as a trigger point is really cash payments to people that are not shareholders. In other words, people that are associates of shareholders. That's where it becomes an unfranked deemed dividend. Where it can be relevant to a shareholder is, of course, the transfer of property. Or provision, property. or provision of an asset. Or, yeah, provision of an asset to the shareholder or the associate of the shareholder. And of course, the effect is the same. It says, well, if it's property, what's the market value of the property? And that market value of the property, if you haven't paid anything, uh, represents the unfranked deemed dividend. Cash payment is easier because it's the value of the payment that translates into the unfranked deemed dividend. Now, exactly how we spoke about this before in the context of loans. Three models 
Again, first model is where the payment is directly to the shareholder or the associate. Second model, where the payment goes to another entity, whether it be a company or trust, and that second company or the second entity makes a payment to the shareholder or the associate. So that brings it within the scope of Division 7A in the same way it did with loans. It also does that in the context of UPs. So with UPs, the same thing. We have a UP and not a loan out to the shareholder from the trust, but rather a payment out to the shareholder or the associate of the shareholder. So the same effect that we have, the mechanical effect of its operation, applies in the same way to payments as it does to loans. The only way you can sort of counter this to some extent, which you can do with loans as well, if we think about Model 3 where we have a UP, it's just pay out, make it a paid entitlement before you can have a taxing effect. If it's a paid entitlement, it's not a UP, then you can basically make payments out of the trust all day without triggering Division 7A. But it's the combination of the two that triggers the adversity under Division 7A, both for loans and for payments under under Model 3. One of the advantages we now have in Division 7A, which we didn't have before, is if I had a loan out of a private company to an associate, for example, then I could fix this. I could fix this by actually doing a loan agreement, commercial loan agreement. But if I have a payment, how do I fix that? I can't fix that. I can't do a loan agreement because it's actually a payment. The cash is gone. Correct. But in 2006, the government amended the law to say if you actually have a payment instead of a loan originally, you can convert the payment to a loan by creating an obligation to repay. And therefore, you have the same remedying rights as you would have under a loan. So you couldn't do that before, but from 1 July 2006, that was one of the things we could do to remedy the Division 7A deemed dividend outcome, exactly as we could under a loan. But we'd have to convert the payment to a loan to be able to get that result. So in other words, we do that by recognising it as a loan on the balance sheet, doing the written loan agreement as we are required to now and applying the minimum repayments in the same way. There was also a change in 2009 relevant to the payment concept of Division 7A. So prior to 2009, we knew this, that the concept of payment would apply to actual payments, cash payments, but it would also extend itself to a transfer of property. Now, when we think transfer of property, we're thinking about legal transfer, a transfer of ownership of the property. That would be encapsulated in the concept transfer of property. It would be a payment under Division 7, as we explained earlier. But what if there's no legal ownership transfer? All that's happening is that the asset is actually owned by the company and continues to be owned by the company. But used by the shareholder. Absolutely. The shareholder has capacity and authority to use or have use of that asset. Well, then the shareholder is really getting a benefit from the company through the use of a company asset. Now, this was never contemplated as being part of the Division 7A framework at its inception. It's a subsequent thought by government 
that this would also be a mechanism under which value goes from the company to the shareholder without commensurate return to the company. And so this use of asset concept was therefore identified as a potential Division 7A triggers an unfranked dividend as well. And then you say, well, how do you pick it up in Division 7A? Because there's only three areas of Division 7A application. Loan, payment, forgiven debt. Well, then you say, if I allow the shareholder to use the company's asset, is that a loan of the asset? To the shareholder? Well, loan means loan of money, if we ascribe the correct definitional framework to loan under Division 7A. It's a loan of money. So a loan of property can't be a loan of money, therefore it can't be a loan. So it's also not a forgiven debt, clearly. So the only thing we can capture it under is as a payment. And this is what they did. So when they created this amendment to Division 7A, they captured the use of assets as a payment concept under Division 7A. Now, what it does do, it extends itself to say, well, you're getting the use of this particular asset from your company. If you had to pay for the use of that asset, what would be the market cost for paying for the use of that asset? What's the market value of this right to use the asset? And that would be the value that would translate into an unfranked dividend. So if the company owns a holiday house or a boat or whatever, and the shareholder gets use of that, we'd have to self-assess what that market value of that right would be. And of course, if we haven't made any payment relevant to that, then that entirety of that market value would be an unfranked dividend. So a lot of taxpayers uh, fell foul of this um, because you have people that buy artwork in their companies but the artwork or the paintings is hanging in their house and they don't pay any company uh, fees or um, license fees or use fees for that asset. So they came a cropper as a result of this. There were some taxpayers that vigorously argued that this legislation is unfair. For example, you had mum and dad who were shareholders in their company. They ran a hotel, motel, bed and breakfast type business out of their company. As a result, they lived in one of the units on the premises. Now, they would not be paying their company rent for occupying that room or that unit on their premises. And so potentially they would fall foul of this legislation. You also had perhaps mum and dad farmer that would live in the farmhouse and the farmhouse would be owned by the company. And once again, they wouldn't pay rent for living in the farmhouse to their company, but they would fulfill of these rules. So there was an element of recognition within government that maybe in some spheres, these rules will play out unfairly. So inserted into the rules, they had certain exceptions. So these were the exceptions. The first exception was to say, well, if the market value of the use of the asset is very low, then really we don't care. So they set a $300 minor benefit exclusion. So if the market value differential is $300 or less, 
Don't worry about it. It's like the FPT. Exactly like the FPT, $300 minor benefit exemption. Yeah. The other exclusion was specifically to recognize the mum and dad example I just gave with the hotel, motel type bread and breakfast business is to say if you use the property as business real property, then it would never have to be this recognition of an unfranked deemed dividend. So it would also cover the farm. The farm might actually be covered under that, or it could also be covered more appropriately under a third exclusion, which is called a main residence exclusion. So if you're actually using the property as your main residence, even though it's owned by the company, it's also excluded. Okay? So that's also a good outcome. Yeah. Ah, so you can claim the main residence exemption in this case? No, you cannot claim the... You can claim it for Division 7A purposes, but not for CGT purposes. Because for CGT purposes, it's owned by the company. But you get the benefit of saying, well, it's owned by the company, but I live in it as my home. And I don't pay any rent to the company. And they would say, well, that's okay. Okay, so there are basically two main residence exemptions. One is for CGT and one is for Division 7A. Absolutely. And then the last exclusion is to say, well, if you did pay rent, you would have been able to claim a tax deduction for that rent payment because that cost is for the purpose of gaining income, normal deduction. So we have this concept called the otherwise deductible rule which exists in fringe benefit tax as well. Basically saying you didn't pay rent to the company, you didn't pay for the use of the asset to the company, but if you did pay, you would be able to claim a tax deduction for that cost in your tax return for whatever reason. So this would apply when I have different businesses and one business is running in a property, is running out of a property that actually belongs to another company. Yeah, I might have have a boat that a company owns, but I use the boat in a charter business personally. And I'm a shareholder of the company, but the company owns the boat. So therefore, if I did actually pay rent to the company for the use of the boat, doing what I'm doing, I'd be able to claim a deduction for that. So therefore, it would be otherwise deductible. And my use of the boat relevant to the company would not trigger an unframed dividend as a result. So those are some exclusions that came in as a result of lobbying by different sectors to say these rules are unfair. So as a result of these insertions into the law as exclusions, it's made the rules a little bit more concessional. One of the things, of course, that we know also is that for payments, it works the same that uh, if the payment is to an associate or a shareholder, it will trigger uh, an unfranked deemed dividend to the extent of the payment. Now, we looked at the number of exclusions where you do have an actual loan to a shareholder or an associate, but if it falls in these exclusions, it wouldn't translate into an unfranked dividend. There are also exclusions in the context of payments for Division 7A. First exclusion is aligned to the exclusion that exists within the loan framework, which is company-to-company payments. Company-to-company payments, just like company-to-company loans, will not by itself trigger Division 7A as an unfranked deemed dividend. The other exclusion is under Section 109J, which talks about the payment of a genuine debt or an obligation to pay under a statutory arrangement that those types of payments would not trigger 
Division 7A because it's an obligatory type of payment, either under state or federal law or it's an obligation to pay a debt. Uh, so obviously, if the company owes the shareholder debt and has to make a payment toward that, that payment, or to the associate as the case may be, won't trigger an unfranked deemed dividend. And then we have the non-duplication section as well as we had on the loans. The payment that would otherwise be assessable income anyway can't be a deemed dividend assessable income under Division 7A. And so where we had a real dilemma with this payment concept is in the case of marriage breakdown. So we had this scenario that often comes up from time to time where we have an individual as a shareholder of a private company. The spouse of that individual is not a shareholder, but they have just gone through a marriage breakdown. Now, normally, if there is a marriage binding arrangement, either through the family court that makes a court order, or there's a binding financial agreement between the two separating spouses. If as a result of either of those, either the court order, the binding financial arrangement, there's a transfer of property from the actual spouse to the other spouse, then that would be a disposal, but capital gains tax affords you a rollover called the marriage breakdown rollover. But what if the asset that's being transferred is not owned by the other spouse, but it's actually owned by the company? And so if the company transfers that asset to the other spouse as a result of a court order or the binding financial agreement, what do we have now? Division 7A. Well, we have a transfer of property. And as we heard earlier, the transfer of property results in a payment for Division 7A. And the payment, based on the market value of the property, would be an unfranked dividend. Now, how unfortunate would this be where you have a pretty traumatic experience being a marriage breakdown, and as a result of what you've agreed, you now end up with an unfranked dividend equal to the amount of the property disposed of, only because it's come from a private company. And so you would say this would have to be really unfair. Now, you would think that we have Section 109J, which says this, and we alluded to this earlier, there's an exclusion if the payment is a result of a court order, a state or federal law, as an obligation type payment. So my logical mind tells me that this should be enough to stop Division 7A from treating this transfer of property as an unfranked dividend. In 2014, the ATO issued a ruling, TR 2014-5. And in that ruling, the ATO said, you cannot draw on the exclusion of 109J in this circumstance. Why? Because the private company, according to the ATO, is not a party to oh, those divorce to proceedings. Correct. And that's why you can't draw on it, even though it may be a direct directive to the company to transfer that property. This is a really unfair outcome if it be true. And it turns out that the government believes it's true. But the government said, we will fix it. Don't worry about it. We will fix it. 
And so you would have thought the obvious way to fix it is to make Section 109J absolutely clear that it would also apply in this situation. But that's not how they fixed it. The way they fixed it is to say, if you have a transfer of property under a marriage breakdown, it will trigger a payment under Division 7A, and it will trigger a deemed dividend. But it will be the only deemed dividend under Division 7A that will be a frankable deemed dividend. So this type of deemed dividend will still result. But if you have franking credits in the company, you can frank this deemed dividend under Division 7A. But if the um, personal tax rate of the receiving spouse is higher than 30%. No, they still lose out. And they would obviously lose out if there's no franking credits in a company. Yeah. Because there may not be franking credits in a company. And, of course, if you have a pretty acrimonious split between spouses, I think there wouldn't be many franking credits in that company. So I think this is not a good fix. But, you know, it's some sort of attempt to alleviate the potential problem. But in most cases, it may not actually do that. Mm. So it's one thing that accountants should be very conscious of. If you do have a marriage breakdown and there's a transfer of property as a result out of a company, then really you're not in the CGT breakdown rollover rules. You're in Division 7A world, which can be a real problem to the extent you may not have yeah, franking credits in that job. It's a it's huge, a huge absolutely, absolutely. One thing that is an equivalent outcome under the payment framework of Division 7A as it is under the loan framework is that even if you do have a payment, whether it's a cash payment or a transfer of property that becomes an unfranked dividend, because it's not in the context of marriage breakdown or anything like that, that unfranked deemed dividend amount can never be more than the company's distributable surplus. So that same principle applies. And as we teased out earlier, the main component here is net assets paid up share value. So even if you have a transfer of property of 100000 but the distributable surplus in that year for that year is only 50000 that's only going to be the unfranked deemed dividend effect. And I think that might be... The way to minimize, minimize the exposure. It. Because yes. if the relationship is acrimonious, then there's probably not much profit in the company Absolutely. at the moment anyway. So that might be the best outcome you can hope for as a result there. Yeah. So you don't have the distributable surplus. You have an unfranked dividend, yes, but the amount of the unfranked dividend is negligible as a result. So that might be where you try and work that out. But be so surprised in the context of the marriage breakdown concept uh, that there's a lot of lawyers out there, solicitors who deal with family law and the like, but that are not necessarily conscious of the Division 7A outcome. So they go off and negotiate arrangements relevant to this between parties for transfer of property from here, there, and everywhere, and some of the assets coming out of a company structure without paying mind to perhaps the Division 7A consequence as a result. So it is a sleeper within the Division it's 7A. like a landmine. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, of course, the other aspect, and this is where there's a point of difference. So we talked about this a little bit uh, when we discussed 
the um, loan framework of Division 7A. And what we teased out then was, if you have a loan to someone that's both a shareholder and also an employee, that Division 7A would supersede fringe benefits tax. It will be a Division 7A loan and can never be a fringe benefit loan or loan fringe benefit, as it were. So we know that. How does it work with payments, though, where we transfer property or provide the use of property to a shareholder that's both an employee and a shareholder? Which one supersedes which in this scenario? Now, here it gets interesting because in this situation where it's a payment, fringe benefits tax potentially supersedes Division 7A to the extent that you can say the transfer of property, the use of the property, is in respect of the employment of that person. Oh, really? So that is... This now, who would have guessed this? If I said to you, if it's loans, Division 7A supersedes fringe benefits tax. In all cases. In all cases. If it's a payment, then potentially fringe benefits tax can supersede Division 7A. I see. So for payments, we need to look, was it was the payment made in... Correct. In the person's capacity as a shareholder or in the person's Correct. capacity Correct. as an employer? And if you say employment, well, then fringe benefits supersedes Division 7A as an outcome. So that throws up an interesting result, which is quite different to what was the case with Division 7A loans. The next element of our discussion is around Division 7A and debt forgiveness. And we'll take up that topic as part of our next installment talking about the Division 7A framework. Welcome back. So Division 7A payments are not just about actual payments, but are also about provision of assets and the sale of assets below market value to a shareholder or their associate. In the next episode, episode 52, Peter Adams will talk about Division 7A debt forgiveness, the last episode in our series about Division 7A. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.